Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast. Today is a bonus episode because I'm afraid to say I'm not quite ready for the next full episode. But this is a separate item that I have been considering for a while, an episode on Jefferson Davis's inaugural address. There are several reasons to look at this, and I intend to follow up by including Alexander Stevens' infamous cornerstone address next week. The two speeches are fascinating contrasts. But before anyone criticizes me for repeating the words of either man, and both of these speeches have some very questionable elements, however, I want to take a moment to discuss the reasons for doing this, and also add a caveat. The caveat, most significantly, is that we're here to discuss what these men believed, what they said, and what they did. Their addresses are important moments in Confederate history, Civil War history, and therefore American history. But in examining this history, we come to understand it. We should not confuse that with condoning it or applauding it. Rather, one vivid and useful method of analyzing events is to look at what people said, why they said those things, when they spoke, and what the context or outcomes of events were. Again, to make this completely clear, I am not here to defend or to simply blindly repeat the words of either man, but we are here to talk about their words. In particular, looking at Jefferson Davis's address will give us a leg up for understanding what actions he took and why he, specifically, took them when he did. Some of these will work out to his seeming advantage, at least in the moment, but others will absolutely appear self-defeating in short order. In addition, Contrasting Davis and Stevens will give us some clues to the nature of the Confederacy and how it presented different faces to different groups. As an aside, you can also expect to hear Abraham Lincoln's own inaugural address shortly. This series is not meant as a critique of only one side. Both the Confederacy and the Union can be hung by their own words. But for today, without further ado, here are selected passages from the first and only Confederate Presidential Inaugural Address, delivered by Jefferson Davis in Montgomery, Alabama, on February 18, 1861. Called to the difficult and responsible station of Chief Executive of the Provisional Government which you have instituted, I approach the discharge of the duties assigned to me with a humble distrust of my abilities but with a sustaining confidence in the wisdom of those who are to guide and to aid me in the administration of public affairs, and an abiding faith in the virtue and patriotism of the people. Looking forward to the speedy establishment of a permanent government to take the place of this, and which by its greater moral and physical power will be better able to combat with the many difficulties which arise from the conflicting interests of separate nations, I enter upon the duties of the office to which I have been chosen with the hope that the beginning of our career as a confederacy may not be obstructed by hostile opposition to our enjoyment of the separate existence and independence which we have asserted, and with the blessing of providence, intend to maintain. Our present condition, achieved in a manner unprecedented in the history of nations, illustrates the American idea that governments rest upon the consent of the governed, and that it is the right of the people to alter or abolish governments whenever they become destructive of the ends for which they were established. The declared purpose of the Compact of Union from which we have withdrawn was to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, 
and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. And when, in the judgment of sovereign states now composing this confederacy, it had been perverted from the purposes for which it was ordained, and had ceased to answer the ends for which it was established, a peaceful appeal to the ballot box declared that so far as they were concerned, the government created by that compact should cease to exist. In this they merely asserted a right which the Declaration of Independence of 1776 had defined to be inalienable, of the time and occasion for its exercise they, as sovereigns, were the final judges, each for itself. They formed a new alliance, but within each state its government has remained, the rights of person and property have not been disturbed. The agent through whom they communicated with foreign governments has changed, but this does not necessarily interrupt their international relations. Sustained by the consciousness that the transition from the former Union to the President Confederacy has not proceeded from a disregard on our part of just obligations, or any failure to perform every constitutional duty, moved by no interest or passion to invade the rights of others, anxious to cultivate peace and commerce with all nations, if we may not hope to avoid war, we may at least expect that posterity will acquit us of having needlessly engaged in it. Doubly justified by the absence of wrong on our part, and by wanton aggression on the part of others, there can be no doubt that the courage and patriotism of the people of the Confederate States will be found equal to any measures of defense, which honor and security require. An agricultural people, whose chief interest is the export of a commodity required in every manufacturing country, our true policy is peace, and the freest trade, which our necessities will permit. There can be but little rivalry between ours and any manufacturing or navigating community, such as the northeastern states of the American Union. It must follow, therefore, that a mutual interest would invite goodwill and kind offices. If, however, passion or the lust for dominion should cloud the judgment or inflame the ambition of those states, we must prepare to meet the emergency and to maintain, by the final arbitrament of the sword, the position which we have assumed among the nations of the earth. Through many years of controversy with our late associates, the northern states, we have vainly endeavored to secure tranquility and to retain respect for the rights to which we were entitled. As a necessity, not a choice, we have resorted to the remedy of separation. But if the integrity of our territory and jurisdiction be assailed, it will but remain for us, with firm resolve, to appeal to arms and invoke the blessings of providence on a just cause. It is deemed advisable, in the present condition of affairs, that there should be a well-instructed and disciplined army, more numerous than would usually be required on a peace establishment. I also suggest that for the protection of our harbors and commerce on the high seas, a navy adapted to those objects will be required. It is not unreasonable to expect that states from which we have recently parted may seek to unite their fortunes with ours under the government which we have instituted. Beyond this, if I mistake not the judgment and will of the people, a reunion with the states from which we have separated is neither practical nor desirable. To increase the power, develop the resources, and promote the happiness of a confederacy, it is requisite that there should be so much of homogeneity that the welfare of every portion shall be the aim of the whole. Actuated solely by the desire to preserve our own rights and promote our own welfare, the separation of the Confederate States has been marked by no aggression upon others, and followed by no domestic convulsion. The cultivation of our fields has progressed as heretofore, and even should we be involved in war there would be no considerable diminution in the production of the staples which we have constituted our exports and in which the commercial world has an interest scarcely less than our own. 
This common interest of the producer and consumer can only be interrupted by an exterior force, which should obstruct its transmission to foreign markets. A course of conduct which would be as unjust towards us as it would be detrimental to manufacturing and commercial interests abroad. Should reason guide the actions of the government from which we have separated, a policy so detrimental to the civilized world, the northern states included, could not be dictated by even the strongest desire to inflict injury upon us, but otherwise a terrible responsibility will rest upon it, and the suffering of millions will bear testimony to the folly and wickedness of our aggressors. In the meantime, there will remain to us, besides the ordinary means before suggested, the well-known resources for retaliation upon the commerce of an enemy. We have changed the constituent parts, but not the system of our government. The constitution formed by our fathers is that of these confederate states. In their exposition of it, and in the judicial construction it has received, we have a light which reveals its true meaning. It is joyous, in the midst of perilous times, to look around on a people united in heart, where one purpose of high resolve animates and actuates the whole, where the sacrifices to be made are not weighed in the balance against honor and right and liberty and equality. Obstacles cannot long prevent the progress of a movement sanctified by its justice and sustained by a virtuous people. All right, now for the analysis. First off, I have to say that I had a hard time getting through all that with a straight face. That was about half of the total text of the speech, and even with that, I had to pause many times as my face scrunched up at the bitter ironies Jefferson Davis forced through his teeth. The canny listener will note that Davis uttered several lies here, and issued several more statements that he probably insisted were true, but no fair judge would have agreed on. For reference, I will link to the full text of the speech, and you'll be able to see what was cut out. Mostly these were thanks, statements of uh, requesting the approval of God on his cause, and emphasizing that it was a holy and righteous struggle, etc., etc. The more important point, however, is... What message was Davis trying to send, and to a limited degree, what does this show about what was really going on behind the scenes? Now, looking at this is really complicated because there is actually a lot of meaning that's packed into those words. We have to note here that Davis had, and knew he had, four primary audiences for this speech, and it was intended for all of them, because he knew that all of them were going to be watching. The first of these were the presumed citizens of the new confederacy. The second were the free white citizens and governments of the slaveholding states which remained within the United States at this moment. The third was the people of the northern non-slaveholding states. And the fourth were the major European powers of the day. We will deal with the messages intended for each in turn. The existing states at this time were broadly a slaveholding elite almost exclusively, in fact. In all of these states but one, slaves actually made up 40% or more of the total population. In South Carolina and Mississippi, they were the actual majority. These were true slave societies, with economies more or less functionally built on slavery and white supremacy to the exclusion of nearly all else. The lone exception was the Lone Star State, in fact. Texas was notably the last of the original Confederate states to jump in, and, as with most, would prove to have a sizable Unionist minority. Less than a third of its population were enslaved African Americans. 
but for cultural and political reasons, they were much more enthusiastic about secession than the Upper South. For all of these, however, Davis wanted to reassure and bind them together. Doing this was a trickier prospect than many realize, for in spite of all those historical maps which confidently label huge swaths as Confederate territory, it was not yet clear how things would work out. At this moment, there was hardly a united government. Very few, if any, resources existed, and only a handful of high officials had been appointed. Each state, instead, was arming its own troops and functionally organizing itself, and each one had different amounts and kinds of resources and intentions. They were all seizing federal armories or customs holdings, and it was not necessarily clear that all of this effort would or could be put towards one use. To do so, Davis emphasized the continual nature of government, even though that was literally what the Confederacy sought to interrupt. He brought up the ideals of 1776 repeatedly, although again, we should always remember that his notions of liberty could only ever apply to white men, and sometimes not even then. But he also talked about how he planned for a long and indefinite future for the Confederacy, and this was also important as both an internal and external message. For both purposes, he aimed to quell doubters and the recalcitrant, and there were a great many of both. Quite a few Southerners, even in the Confederacy at this moment, wanted to figure out a way to climb down from their perch, and to try to come to some sort of understanding with the status quo. What that agreement might be in the end was unclear, but it's worth noting that the idea of Reconstruction actually predated the war and all the bloodshed. Davis absolutely and unconditionally intended to put a stop to any such notions, which is in part going to propel action over Fort Sumter. That said, in this speech he was saying this in a forthright but gentle manner. His goal was to forge a new Confederate government over the Confederate states, not necessarily to shock or worry a people already seething with anxious energy. So in part, he cloaked the overall message with a statement blaming everything on abolitionists and the northern states, which of course conveniently exonerated him and the secessionists of any wrongdoing. Note that in the same breaths that he proclaims peace, he was also talking about arming for war, quite literally declaring that he felt threatened by northern aggression and outrages while assembling battalions. This was also a message congenial and complimentary to his second audience, the slaveholders in the Upper South and border states. We must look at his message here and for the North at the same time, because of course Davis was intentionally speaking from both sides of his mouth. Again, in one breath he blamed the North for everything, but at the same time proclaimed that he was all for peace and live and let live. Yet he was also inviting other states to join the Confederacy, at least if they were slaveholding, and only on that basis. This was essentially declaring that he considered the United States fair game, but any attempt to maintain itself on the part of the latter would be an act of aggression. At the same time, his references to the American Revolution were also useful in trying to entice the Upper South and ward off the North, since all involved explicitly endorsed the same revolutionary principles. They could hardly curse the new Confederate states for invoking them. And indeed, Republicans would take considerable care to address this point in short order. Now, in addition, Davis focused on building up a military, 
Not surprisingly, this would end up being the most important and significant issue in the Confederacy, pretty much to the exclusion of anything else. This was intended as a threat aimed at the northern states, but it was also a signal to his final audience, European powers. The Confederacy aimed very clearly to receive quick recognition from one or more European powers, ideally Britain or France or both. For this purpose, emphasizing the idea that the Confederacy was invincible and indomitable, and, well, a going concern in general, all made sense. Placing its military readiness front and center was just a useful point, but most of all, emphasizing that it was agrarian and open for business was the key carrot to go along with the big stick. And it was a carrot Davis believed would be a good wedge against the northern states too, Note that he only really references the manufacturing Northeast powerhouses, not, say, the Midwest or even the Mid-Atlantic region. Against both Boston and London, Davis assumed that cotton was king, and he wanted to use cotton as the lure to compel peace on his terms as well as diplomatic recognition and implicitly support. In this, we are going to see very shortly that he is badly, sadly mistaken as to the importance of the South. The war he starts is going to effectively erase the Southern cotton industry for years. It is not that cotton was economically unimportant, far from it. But when push comes to shove, cotton will prove the servant of industry and not its master. Additionally, we also need to take note of something Davis avoided ever saying, slavery. That word appears nowhere in his address, and he very carefully skirts the issue by only referring to vaguely stated rights. As a confirmed believer in states' rights, he could rest his statements on the latter without having to acknowledge the former, the ugly reality that lay trapped beneath. And this was not a trivial concern, because Davis didn't know how Britain or France might react to a nation founded explicitly on slavery. Davis could probably guess that Britain wouldn't like it much, given their long-standing opposition to the international slave trade and firm intent to fight it at sea. Indeed, the British patrolled the known slave depots in Africa more vigorously than any other nation. Britain had turned specifically abolitionist during the early 19th century. However, Davis might have reflected that Britain had never gone to any length to stop the practice in the various new states of the Americas formed out of the vestiges of colonial empires. Britain helped or opposed them as politics demanded, and slavery did not specifically drive policy otherwise. Now, the prospect of French recognition was almost as valuable. France, though far less important as a naval power and possessing no nearby islands as Britain did, still had substantial economic, political, and cultural influence. It also happened to be under the thumb of the vigorous Emperor Napoleon III. Now, his story is one wild tale on its own, but the important thing here is that Napoleon ruled as a dictator, and he had very few, if any, scruples about pursuing power. Napoleon III might prove a useful ally to the Confederacy, in part because he perhaps hoped to get an edge on Britain that way. Additionally, it will shortly turn out that he has ambitions in Mexico and wanted a nearby friend who could block any intervention from the United States. And, of course, he would also want cotton. Davis, for his part, promised to supply it even in the event of war, although that will prove a far harder thing to do than to say. 
Now, that is a much too brief look at Davis's inaugural address, because you could indeed go far deeper than this. But I do feel that that is a great place to start, and to understand some of the complexities and paradoxes and deliberate hypocrisies of the Confederacy. But we are going to follow up on this by analyzing a much different, perhaps more coherent, and certainly more honest speech by Alexander Stevens. I also want to end by apologizing for upsetting the normal flow of episodes. I did feel that this was an important moment to pause and observe before moving on. Thank you for listening to the American Civil War Podcast. I hope you'll join us next time.